Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to this episode of the ISE podcast series. Um, today, we're talking about the labour market um, with reference to the current coronavirus crisis. Obviously, it's having a, a huge impact on our sector, the broader sector, and it's also affecting sectors in many different ways. I'm joined by a number of real experts in this field who are going to give us some, some wonderful insight into their knowledge and talk about what's happening now and maybe a little bit of uh, predictions about how this might impact us in the future. So if we just like to introduce ourselves. Um, I'm Steve Ishwood, so I'm Chief Exec of the ISE. Uh, Tristram, do you want to go next? Yeah, so I'm Tristram Hooley, and I'm uh, Chief Research Officer at the ISE. I'm uh, John Boys, and I'm the Director of Evidence and Insight at the Federation for Industry, Sector, Skills and Standards. So we have a big overview of the apprenticeship sector. Uh, I'm Duncan Brown. I'm Senior Economist at MZ in the UK, and we're provider of labour market intelligence and insights and all of those things. I'm Charlie Ball. I'm the head of higher Educa education intelligence at the Higher Education Career Services Unit, and so I'm I'm kind of the labour market specialist for UK university sector bodies. Okay, so we've got a mixture. We've got some real graduate experts here, but also some experts on the broader labour markets as well. So why don't we get stuck in straight away? And I'm kind of interested in all your takes on what you think the immediate impacts that you've noticed from this COVID-19 crisis on the labour market and the wider economy. Charlie, do you want to sort of take this first from a very much graduate perspective? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, there's a there's going to be a difference between the way that the graduate, the, the larger graduate employers and the smaller graduate employers are experiencing these, these sort of things. The larger graduate employers, particularly those that have good technological networks, um, those who have agile working, those for whom there's a big culture already of flexible working, are experiencing this as a is an inconvenience more than anything in many cases. It's hastening a transition to a more virtual working environment, but by and large, a lot of them can continue business to an extent reasonably as usual, and the rise of high-quality networking tools has made them able to get together and, 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 and do this kind of thing quite easily. The difference is for smaller businesses is a great deal of a great deal of uncertainty. I've talked to quite a few over the last few days, and, and many of them have forward orders for the next few weeks, which they can fulfill, but after the future looks extremely uncertain. Um, and that, that's quite sector-wide. So we, we are already seeing a kind of tiering system for well-resourced employers and, and those with strong abilities to gather together their networks and, and those employers who have fewer resources to handle and smaller cash floats. And I think that will start to exacerbate as time goes on. I mean, I think from the point of view of, of the ISE's employer membership, I mean, we'll de definitely follow up what Charlie says, most of the ISE's members are able to cope with this. They're big employers, but it does vary quite a lot by sector. So you have got some who are in sectors where they are already furloughing people. And obviously in that situation is not a situation in which you're planning for recruitment for September, October. I mean, the immediate effects we've seen is that an awful lot of firms have cancelled summer placement schemes, work experience, those kinds of short-term hires that we would expect them to be doing firstly over Easter and then secondly over the summer. And most of that stuff's been cut. I think in terms of where, where they're going to go next, my sense is that most of them don't know, but they're kind of keeping their powder dry a bit on that. Yeah, I mean, the news today that National Express are looking at um, large-scale changes to working and potentially layoffs. We've got to bear in mind that there are a lot of companies in the graduate space, particularly in, in things like transportation outside of you know people think oh yeah logistics is doing fine because all the groceries and stuff are still coming in but if you're in transportation sector outside of that space for for example the rail bus transport companies have seen demand disappear and they have an obligation to keep 
routes and things open, which is a very significant strain on finances. So that sort of employer is absolutely experiencing very serious issues. Employers that do kind of work that professional work that is contracted and billed by the hour, for example, will find challenges. For every employer that are experiencing this as an inconvenience rather than an existential threat, there are others that are anticipating a very hard time of it. And I think Tristan's word is absolutely right. There are not a lot of people absolutely thriving under these circumstances, let's say. John or Duncan, any thoughts you've got on the conversation we've just been having? One of the um, measures that we track is uh, job postings data. So we go around scraping tens of thousands of job boards and deduplicating them because uh, job postings turn up in all kinds of ways and it's the same one. It's a, a pretty volatile indicator because what recruiters and employers are advertising isn't always a reflection of the underlying job demand, but the sort of the movement is quite striking. So uh, in the past two or three weeks, we've seen about a quarter of a million job postings disappear out of uh, 1.6 million, so about 15% fall. And that's probably liable to continue because a lot of job postings are put on uh, with uh, automated scheduling. And so uh, as they continue to disappear and maybe not be replaced, you will just sort of see that kind of number continue to dwindle. And so, yeah, it's a really, really striking indication. And it's pretty much across the board, most regions, some more than others. It's quite interesting that even though London has probably the highest concentration of uh, COVID cases, it's probably less effective, probably because it has a lot more professional employment that is more flexible and sort of uh, manageable in that way. And But it's interesting that even the jobs that are holding up aren't growing a lot in posting terms. Now, that can be a bit misleading because one job posting may reflect lots of jobs. And so if you think about sort of all the retail jobs that we hear talked about, there may be one posting in an area but, it, but they'll actually take on 100 people. But still, it's kind of, as of yet, there aren't the huge moves. And it'll be interesting in a month's time when the unemployment data comes through to get that side of the picture as well. But I think, uh, yeah, certainly at the moment, it does look generally like a real hard uh, stamp on the brakes. It was a really, really nice piece of work. And if he's listening to this and hasn't seen it, do take a time out to have a look at what, what Duncan's done with that job posting data. And quite insightful at the moment. And we need all the data and information that we can get right now. We're, we're updating it daily as well. So uh, as it continues to develop, it will be good to yeah. see what happens next. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, I suppose, agree with Charlie said, because Tristram, you were tweeting earlier about how useless the lay market information from the ONS will be when it takes three months to get to us. But I don't really need to look at the data because it's in my living room. So I graduated into the financial crash. It was a tough time, but I've never seen anything like this. Friends and family sat around twiddling their thumbs, really with nothing much to do now. My last report that I did at the CIPD, bizarrely, was on home working. I just thought this is a really interesting trend. Let's see who works from home by industry, by occupation, by region. And the differences by occupation and industry were so stark. You had in IT, almost 90% of people were working from home occasionally. In hospitality, it was less than 10%. Now, it's fairly obvious that we still live in a material world of people moving things around, eating things, going places, and uh, some jobs just simply cannot be done from home. Some industries, some jobs are able to continue, and the efforts are really heroic. If you look at how universities are doing their examinations online, how we've all quickly in the last week clued on to how to use so many different bits of tech, hardware and software, it's heroic, but it can only do so much. Some of the barriers are still insurmountable and may take some time. 
It's interesting, isn't it, John? You mentioned that, well, I think you all have actually that diversity of sectors. It's interesting when you're also trying to think about the, the amount of information that's out there. So we know talking to all the employers that, that we work with in that graduate apprentice space, the, the interns bit they've had to focus on pretty quickly because that's kind of imminent. Graduate apprentice starts who would on the whole start around September time. There's a couple of conversations going in. One is do the businesses, are they going to suffer, you know, an economic hits, therefore they just don't need as many people. Um, and we're already seeing some employers say to us, we're just not going to hire any more grads this year. And then you've also got that thought process around, actually, should we defer some till next year? What's that situation? I mean, we've also got employers, though, that are recruiting just as they were beforehand. They very quickly moved their processes online. They're very quickly doing online assessment centres and are making offers virtually. They've got over that, that mental barrier of having to see them in the flesh, as it were. But what's interesting is numbers. What they can't tell us at the moment, I think it's fair to say, Tristram, is numbers, isn't it? They can say that they're, they're looking at it and they're looking hard, but they're not saying yet, actually, this is the direct number of jobs we're talking about. And I think the other thing is that it's an emerging situation, isn't it? It's, it nobody really knows what they're going to do in September yet. I mean, I think what is clear is that there's sort of two types of problem. And the first problem that, that employers are getting is essentially a logistical problem, which is how do you get people working from home? And in the case of the kind of employers we're working with, where they're doing mass recruitment and they're using things like assessment centers normally, how do you shift all of those assessment centers online? And those are problems that people will sort out. Now, they might not sort them out in the normal time scale. Some of them will, because some of them are quite advanced down that line already, as, as we've seen. But others might not sort it out in the time scale for September, but they will figure those things out, assuming that we stay locked down or in some kind of reduced mobility situation. I think that there's those kinds of issues. Now, there are bigger issues about whether people are willing to do things like make final appointments and start people and have people inducted in large numbers without anybody ever meeting this person in the flesh. There are some questions there, but I, my guess is that as time goes on, employers will figure out how to do that and they'll certainly contingency plan for this in the future. But the bigger issue, you know, if we think about some of the kinds of firms that we're talking about, they've shut down huge chunks of their business and they're not in a position to do that. So even if they now are able to start recruiting as normal again, they've got to recover and deal with the crisis of that. And it may be that bringing new staff in right now is not helpful to dealing with that kind of crisis management. And that's mm -hmm. to say nothing of the kind of longer term economic impact. So I think we've got quite a few different strands going on that all could impact on the numbers of people who are likely to be being recruited out of education into the labour market over the next six months. There's actually a third group, of course, who are the uh, those group of employees who are desperately trying to recruit absolutely anybody they can right now who don't not necessarily always quite so squarely on on the isc world, but some of them are graduate employers obviously the national health service is pretty keen to get people in social care the supermarkets are very keen to get people in through the door it is going to emerge over the next few months that there are some areas that desperately need staff um, and i think the thing to bear in mind and the, the unspoken thing is that the graduate labor market is still going to exist and there is that there are still going to be graduate employers and, and, and graduate demand. What we don't know is quite how and where that's going to manifest in a very wider sense over the next few months. As Jonathan said, we're in uncharted territory. No country around the world has done this before. We're flying blind.
some of you started talking about sort of that September period. Who's brave enough to do a bit of crystal ball thinking and think, well, where, where could we be in September based on current evidence or current thinking? I think you'd have to be very brave to make a prediction at this point. My gut feeling is that we won't be in a position to get back to anything resembling normal before that. Certainly, the businesses and universities that I'm talking to are tending towards that view also. We'd be exceptionally fortunate to get back to business as usual, something resembling business as usual by September, because you'd need the virus to have abated all around the world by that point. And that, regardless of our own efforts, there's no point having a lockdown that's successful in the UK if it's not working everywhere else. So as soon as we open our borders, people come in from another country. Let's let's take one off the top of our head, say America, for example, where it might not have been contained and bring it all back again. It's got to have evaded around the world before we can really start to open everything up again. That's not going. That's going to be months. Yeah, I, I think I, I'd agree with that. I think that there's two big variables here to consider. One is the duration of this full lockdown period, because every day that this goes on, and you know it's worth it for lots of reasons, but every day that it goes on, economic linkages are going to start to be frayed and put under stress, and they're a lot easier to break than they are to form and it takes time to reform them. So as this period goes longer, the damage gets worse. And then what Charlie was saying, even after that period, how much of a sort of a, a restriction have we got on activity that goes into the future, probably into 2021, that is going to impede activity anyway. So it's not even that when the lockdown is over, things go back to some kind of normal and we can just get on with the healing process unimpeded. You've got to take a view on those two questions in order to have any kind of view on what sort of condition will be in come September. And you know, even that first one about how long the full lockdown lasts, you can ask ministers and they don't know in truth because it'll all be on the basis of what the data tells us about the progress against coronavirus, what the testing technology sort of state is like, whether NHS capacity is improved sufficiently. All these kind of questions will have to be resolved before that lockdown can be abated. But every week that it goes further, the damage will go deeper economically, unfortunately. One of the things I've heard economists talking about is, um, I've heard you mention this, Tristram, um, this V-shaped tight refreshing mm -hmm. as in deep in it'll be quite hard hitting but actually quite a, a sharp uplift and I think if we look back to the financial crash that did play out over a longer period of time. I was chatting to one of our suppliers they think the investor community has a similar view which it will be quite a, a strong impact based on historical terms but actually we should come out of it quite quickly. Do you think that's is that a best case scenario or something we just don't we just really can't say at this stage? I think the larger employees and the well-resourced ones will, will probably experience it in that way. But we've yet to see the, the damage and the effects on the small businesses. And if there's extensive damage to the business model and we, have, we see a lot of small businesses going under, it's going to take a long time to rebuild that. In areas of the country where the small business environment is more important, so the peripheries, again, the outlying areas, there's kind of areas that tend to get hot in recessions, will take, to, take longer to recover. And, and that, that's what troubles me a little bit about this talk. Yeah, the big corporates, the big international corporates will probably recover very quickly. Small businesses, I'd like to think that they can get back on their feet. I'd like to think that furloughing will be successful and once recovery comes around or once we, once we see the lockdown eased, people can get straight back into the saddle and start working. I'd like to think that's going to happen. This is 
sharp and deep, but government response has not been shy, has it? It's a serious money supporting this and probably fitting for the size of the challenge. Now, I think that things will bounce back to an extent because I shaved my own head a couple days ago. That wasn't pleasant, but I didn't really have a choice. As soon as this stops, there are certain uh, services that we're just, we, we simply can't use, that we're all desperate to use. And so there will be a bounce back, but I, I think that the damage that's done in the meantime might sort of reduce the general capacity of the economy, and that might take a little bit longer to catch up. The longer this goes on, the more that damage is caused, and perhaps slightly more optimistic than others. I think that things like testing might be expensive, things like shutting your economy down are incredibly expensive, and I think that we just necessity will find a solution. And you've seen that rates of infection, you know, famously in China now, they're having more new cases imported from abroad than um, homegrown because they've got on top of it. There's stories about Singapore and Hong Kong being able to open up significant parts of their economy and travel restrictions being eased. So with any luck, the kind of successful models that we see, and remember, we've got a lot of countries to kind of case study what works and what doesn't. And it seems like a few of them, Singapore, South Korea, test and trace are managing to get things back up and running. So I think that we have no choice but to make that work. And by September's five full months, uh, it's only been 69, 70 days, so two and a half odd months since Wuhan was locked down. So we've got two and a half times as much time from now till September as we have since Wuhan was locked down. And if you've seen their cases, they up and then they're right down again. So, you know, with any luck, slightly more optimistic tone from me i can't wait to be able to buy and eat pasta again mm. what about you duncan have you resorted to shaving your hair about 15 years ago so i was ahead of the curve on that but there'll be no recovery dollar for the uh, hairdressers of the land from me i'm afraid on a more optimistic note now I, I have quite a lot of sympathy for what john's just said there i think that the potential for a more v-shaped recovery this time compared to say the last recession is a, a lot better in the sense that the financial crisis especially just led to a massive you know breakdown of the financial system it led to sort of debt overhang in certain areas it led to general kind of caution and you know a period where you couldn't borrow from a bank at all and all of these problems that really just left to a bit big sort of hangover period and of course there was the uh, the turn that we've never recovered from in terms of productivity uh, improvements as well. So all, all those things together meant that that was a very elongated recovery. And in some ways, uh, we we barely got to the point of recovery by the time that this struck. Whereas this one, yes, there will be lots of unpleasantness. There'll be unemployment. There'll be businesses that can't make it and all of that. But in macroeconomic terms, actually, most of the fundamentals of the economy are recoverable it will take time though i mean as i mentioned earlier economic linkages are easier to break than to form and so that will just take some time so uh, it, it will be more v-shaped certainly than the last one was but it could be quite a deep uh, v-shape and the, the right hand half of it to just flog the metaphor to death could be a little bit leaning out and so yeah so I, but i think that yeah we should recover very well I, my fear is more if the full lockdown goes too long then there comes a point when the financial firepower of the government to continue the very good supports that as uh, john said earlier uh, will come into question and the level of support can only go for so long i mean that gets into one of the really important issues which is what's the role of government 
of central banks and so on in this. One way to, to think about what happened in financial crash was that although there were stimulus packages, they weren't really big enough and that policies of austerity actually extended some of the downsides of that. I mean, we can argue about whether that's right or not, but certainly in terms of wages, there were a number of things that the government did around disinvestment from public sector that, that made wage issues worse. It looks like at the moment, government, not just in the UK, but around the world, is taking a very different kind of response. So Lisa Nandy, I saw, was on the, the lunchtime news today, and she was saying, we need a Marshall Plan type approach. We need a big investment type approach. I think this is absolutely true for small businesses, that many small businesses have closed their doors now with no confidence that they will ever open them again. Because although they're getting subsidized on wages, they've got lots of other costs as well, which won't just disappear over a three-month period. And most small businesses don't operate, probably many of us know, on such huge margins that they can just close down for three months. So so there's that. But even if you think about some of the big firms, if you think about you know travel firms, about logistics firms, about all sorts of, of organizations where the being there, the physical act of you know either having people come into your premises or being able to move around freely are important to their business, then many of those will be under considerable financial pressure when this, when this immediate kind of health crisis finishes. And so what do we do about that, really? We've got to try and do something which, is, uh, which enables those firms to continue in some way and not just to divest themselves of all of their assets and, and get out or massively shrink. Otherwise, we will see huge shrinkages. So I'm less optimistic about this. That doesn't mean nothing can be done. And it doesn't mean that we're, we're inevitably going back to kind of the Middle Ages again. But I think what happens out of this crisis is going to require forms of intervention um, if, if we're not going to see the economy very drastically restructured. And think about the restructuring. Do any of you think there will be any sort of long-term shifts, maybe in behaviours, shapes of the recruitment markets? When I remember the financial crash, there was one thing that happened, which was actually, despite the wage pressures and austerity, actually there was a bit of a flight to safety amongst, amongst particularly the student population. So programs like Teach First did, did really well. You know, when I think about the recruitment advertising industry, that never went back to sort of the, the days of the mid-noughties when there's a lot more spent on advertising and branding. So I wonder if any of you have had any thoughts around actually what might be reshaped that might that might stick around as a result of this. I think it's going to be big. I, I think there are people trying internet shopping now that never tried it before. My in-laws, for one, because we didn't want them to have to leave the house because they're over 70. And so it, it, it just made sense. There are people, as was being said earlier, uh, working from home. Organisations allowing people to work from home that had never worked from home before because it wasn't OK. We don't want that kind of thing. We're not sure how it worked. John said earlier, it's necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, people find a way. And uh, so all of that will change. Our attitude towards epidemics, uh, the capacity that we have in society to deal with those kind of things. I think we're going to become a lot more conscious of the need for those capabilities to be held in reserve. And our attitudes towards globally extended supply chains that all of a sudden aren't there when you need them um, will also change as well. And you know, if globalisation was under a lot of pressure before 2020, it's a whole lot more after 2020 in truth, because actually uh, when the chips were down, 
it, it started to present all kinds of questions for, for people about, well, how do we make sure that we've got enough PPE for healthcare workers when we need it and all of those kind of questions. So, yeah, I think the changes are potentially really big. I was pretty much going to agree. Um, only point to add, I think that there's this a new layer that goes beyond just a platitude of the recognition of the role of different occupations, the shelf stackers, delivery drivers, how crucial they are to keeping the show on the road. And I think that we always had an inkling that that was the case, but this has really proved it. So uh, with any luck, we'll come out of this a slightly more compassionate society and um, a, a little bit more inclusive in how we think about which roles are important. I, I do get the sense that's going to happen. I think obviously, and the point that Duncan's made is, is really important there, is actually I think the very key fundamental change that will happen is that we're going to take this sort of thing a lot more seriously. We're going to take planning for pandemics really, really seriously in future because nobody is going to want this to happen again. And it's going to be priority one pretty much for every government around the world. And so we're, that that is going to be a, a fundamental change. I think those aspects of virtual working and, and the changes to working environments that are working for businesses will become embedded. So a lot of professional workers, a lot of people like us, if we're not already based at home, we'll be based at home in the future. And it can be demonstrated worse. One interesting point I do disagree with you there, Duncan, is actually on the retail, on the retail side of things, you're right, there are a lot of people trying internet shopping at home, but here, um, We've also seen the local shops, local greengrocers and independent retailers, and it's a story around the country, seeing far greater footfall because also people are appreciating that these are community-based organisations that are the backbone of their local communities. I'm actually more optimistic than most about what this means for the high street, for example, because I think people now realise it was kind of a bit sad before when, you know, the local shops had gone and there was a big out-of-town retail centre. But that's OK because we could all drive to Tesco's. Now it's a real problem that they're not there and people really wish that they were there. And I think we'll see some moves in that direction. I think we're more focused on community. I hope there will be more focus on community, more focus on local communities and local structures. And you're right, I think those supply chains will, there'll be a real move to shorten a lot of those supply chains. And people will be prepared to pay more, just a, li a little bit more for their groceries and for their bread and so forth, if they can get it from a local local organisation that they know will be there when they need them. I'm, I'm sort of torn because generally my position on most things is things don't change very much. So like, you know, with any social data that I'm used, used to looking at, nothing very much changes. We've had it, Stephen, where people kind of ask me things like, oh, are people using loads more e-recruitment tools than they were 10 years ago? And you look at it and you find, no, they're not really. I mean, not very much. I mean, they are a bit, but it's pretty slow change on those sorts of things. And so normally my answer is always, well, everything kind of will go back to how it used to be. But I suppose the thing is, this seems to be such a big shock. And depending on how long it goes on, the bigger issues, which are about the economy, there's the sort of more... Uh, organizational issues which are about well do you shift to e-learning to e-recruitment to uh, home working all of these things and they all all of those things have economic impacts with some winners and, and often quite a lot of losers it feels to me like if this is fairly short then probably many of those things will start people will start to track back to them and they'll start to go back to you know driving a long way for things and working in offices and so on if it goes on for a long period of time, and also if pandemics become more common, 
and we have this idea that we might be well let out but then lock back down again and so on that people's contingency planning for these things have to shift and and that potentially has has the possibility of shifting the way we work in more fundamental ways if you think about something like recruitment probably is an area that's quite ripe for that because the technology is there to support recruitment to move online has been there for a long while and it's been underutilized that this might just shift people just like the example of people moving to shopping online but i just do wonder whether people will go back to organizing assessment centers if they successfully do it online for example because it's got to be end up cheaper online and so on so i think there could be even if you take the bigger economic issues out i think there could be some issues in changing ways of working both in in our industry and more broadly I think that's right because it's interesting that's my take out from the financial crash was that actually where employers learn to do things more efficiently and cheaply actually that's the bit that stuck you know interesting to see how many people go back to offices in the same way I mean there have been some thinkers of saying in the recruitment world that actually you don't need to do recruitment face-to-face you can do it all online well actually now that's being proven you've all kind of said in one way or another this our paradigm has shifted. I I mean, the bit that I keep remembering is about five weeks ago, I was listening to an analyst on Bloomberg and she was saying, we've got it all wrong. Everybody's model that they're working to is SARS, but SARS is 20 years out of date. Global traders quadrupled in that time. Global traffic has quadrupled. This is going to hit so much harder than people think. And the reason I look back to it is, well, she was right, (laughs) you know, five weeks ago. And that's exactly how it's turned out. That's been a really interesting session. Thanks very much for your insights. Got some really good, good information there. And and I'd like to think that actually in a month or two times, we'll come back to you. We'll rehab this conversation and we'll see actually where we're at. We could all squabble about who was the wrongest. <laughs> <laughs> we won't play it all back to you. I think that might, might be too, I'm too harsh. So, but thank you for making those predictions because it is, it's a very difficult thing to do, especially when we're in um, uncharted water at the moment. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank to all of you um, that have listened to this podcast. We hope you'll listen to um, many more episodes that we'll have to come from now. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye.